They're fascinated by these very complicated and, and challenging ideas. As well, they might be 10 years on, but um, they're also worried by them, I think. They're also um, confused and, and at, often at odds with their parents. Not at odds with their parents because their parents don't wish to discuss them, but it's a sort of whole uh, language and um, culture uh, that unless you spend an awful long time reading into it, as I've done, you wouldn't necessarily even know what your kids are talking about or that there's potentially something you know, rather dangerous about it. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Joanne Nadler, a writer, journalist and concerned parent. Joanne released a report with Civitas Think Tank about critical social justice undermining schools through radical teachings on race, gender and sexuality. As many as 41% of the pupils had actually been taught during lessons that young men are currently a problem for society. Really? Now, if you are a young man, if you're a young boy, um, if you're a teenage boy, and you're trying to come to terms with your own identity, um, then to have that very sort of innate negative messaging, um, I would suggest isn't necessarily going to help you be a better friend to girls. Joanne talks about how parents can group together to combat what she calls a revolution. There are a lot of parents uh, who are deeply, deeply concerned about this, and you only have to look at social media um, and uh, uh, you know ac across the board to see that the groups are sort of um, springing up. But mm. often um, parents feeling that they have to remain anonymous. I'm Lee Hall. This is British Thought Leaders. John Adler, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. You uh, released a report on critical social justice in schools. Can you talk to us a bit about what critical social justice is and, and what you found? Of course, Lee, and, and thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I think I should probably start by saying that, you know, I'm not an academic. Um, I am a concerned parent. I'm a journalist. I've had a career in and around politics, both as a reporter and uh, also in some cases as, as a campaigner. Um, and at various points, I've been involved uh, with the Conservative Party. Um, but I guess these days I think of myself primarily uh, as um, a writer and uh, a campaigning parent. And critical social justice isn't really a concept that I was particularly aware of, certainly not in a sort of practical sense, not in an applied sense, um, until I guess three or four years ago. And I think at that stage I would have thought about it as being uh, a set of philosophical and ideological ideas primarily drawn from the left, but it wouldn't really have had very much of an immediate effect on my everyday life. It's only really been the last, uh, I guess, two or three years since I've um, seen uh, various developments in my son's school and, and, and in the schools of, of um, friends of, of, of children of friends of mine, uh, that I've really um, become fascinated by this by this whole world, which seems to be, if you like, entering into schools as it is with many of our other institutions and introducing a set of values and um, I, and, I, and I have to say an ideology. Uh, which somewhat runs counter to the uh, liberal framework that we have uh, essentially valued and respected in this country for the most part. 
Um, you ask what I would describe critical social justice as. I mean, as far as I can see, it seems to be a way of looking at the world which sees the world as being um, essentially based on relationships of hierarchy and relationships of exploitation. Uh, so it is, many people would say it's a sort of derivation of Marxism. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. But very, very crudely put, I guess, Marxism would see the exploiter as being the capitalist, the industrialist, exploiting the worker. And critical social justice ranges over a number of different identities that are a lot more complicated than just being a worker. And, you know, essentially, um, it depends whether you see race as being your primary identity marker, whether it's your sexuality, whether it's your gender, which is something we're hearing a whole load more about now. And critical social justice, it seems to me, is attempting to um, not only interpret the world wholly through that lens, uh, but also to um, create a sort of hermet hermetically sealed uh, vision uh, in which it, it not only posits the problem, the problem is that, you know, if, if you're white and heterosexual and, and male, you're almost certainly an exploiter in this system, um, but it also presupposes the answer to that. So that's what I mean about hermetically sealed. It's not saying, well, this might be what's wrong with the world, let's mm. investigate it. It's essentially saying this is what's wrong with the world, and mm. in order to correct it, you then have to take action, which is broadly speaking described as achieving equity in whichever of these um, uh, categories you consider yourself to be, uh, to have been abused or, or um, shall we say, uh, exploited. So you describe what's happened in schools as a revolution. So what's the scale and severity of, of the problem? Well, to my mind, it's a revolution um, because I think it's unpicking what we certainly my generation, I'm in my 50s, I've got a, a teenage son, um, but certainly what we would have considered to be the essential nature of education, which is teaching people how to think, mm -hmm. not necessarily teaching them what to think. Teaching people what to think is more in, in tune with um, an idea of training or, dare I say, even indoctrination. Um, and if you apply to a school setting this hermetically sealed kind of self-perpetuating ideology which says this is what the problem in society is and this is how you solve it, then you're essentially making it much more difficult for children to form their own judgment as to what the problem might be and how they should solve it. Now, to a certain extent, I guess people would all, always say that there have been prevailing values that have informed uh, a school setting, even in a democracy, even in a liberal democracy, but broadly speaking, those values have been in tune with what I'd call, you know, the democratic norms and the majoritarian view within that society. What we seem to have been seeing over the last, you know, I guess it's inc increasingly over the, over the last decade, and as far as gender ideology is concerned, I guess over the last you know, relatively very, very rapid period, perhaps over the last five years or so, um, is the inclusion in schools and in a very... Um, a concerted way, not just in, in individual strands of education, like the sex education class, as it were, uh, but sort of um, peppered throughout the curriculum and, uh, and, and introduced into sort of extracurricular activities and in the assemblies and things like that. Um, these ideas that, you know, many people would think do not reflect a majoritarian view. I wouldn't say they shouldn't be discussed in school, although I would draw the line at some of them. 
But broadly speaking, I, I do personally take a liberal approach, which is by all means introduce ideas, but you have to make sure uh, that they're being discussed uh, fairly and rationally, that you explain that they aren't necessarily the only solution to the problem or even the only problem. Uh, and I think this is my concern and why I've tended towards using this uh, slightly um, provocative language by describing it as a revolution. The other reason I describe it as a revolution is because I think um, not only is it undermining, you know, the essential values of what I consider schooling to be, not only is it leading to a situation where, you know, traditional topics in the curriculum, let's say history and English, are being completely sort of rethought because activists would suggest that a traditional curriculum only embeds further this, uh, this hierarchy of exploitation. Um, but we're seeing, if you like, schools under pressure from different ends of the, uh, of, of the system. So you have got, um, and I hesitate to say um, activists because I don't want to give the impression that I think there's an army of activists eating away at the bedrock of schools. I think it's more sophisticated than that. Um, but I do think that there are agents coming into schools who have ideas which we would previously have considered partisan and they're being presented as though they are fact, as though they are beyond discussion. So um, I know you did some polling as part of your report. I think some of the uh, results that you got really spell out for people what it is that you're actually talking about. Could you talk to us about some of that? Yes, of course, Lee. So, um, so I wrote this report uh, with a think tank called Civitas. And essentially, I wanted to have some time to reflect on what's going on, where these trends have come from, mm. uh, what the source of them might be, and what, if anything, we should do about them, what we could do about them. But we wanted to um, find a way to, to illustrate, in a, in a sort of practical way, um, wider than just you know, my own ruminations on all of this, um, how this manifests in school. So we did ask Delta Poll to, con to commission a poll for us, um, both of parents and uh, also of school-aged children between 16 and 18. Right. And um, we asked a lot of questions ranging across a number of these different aspects of uh, critical social justice. So we asked about gender ideology, we asked about um, how race is treated in school, uh, we asked about um, aspects that have occurred in in the um, relationships and sex and, and sex education strand of, of schooling, which is causing uh, quite a lot of anxiety to, to many parents, simply because of the um, very explicit nature of some of the material that is now finding its way into school, even at primary level. Um, and one of the things that 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 started to to make me anxious about this whole area. And which prompted me to uh, start investigating it was, um, first of all, the reaction in many schools, but particularly uh, in my son's school, in, in the schools that uh, were uh, neighbouring schools, um, very quickly in the summer of 2020 to the Black Lives Matter protests. Mm. Now, Black Lives Matter um, was obviously something that caught the imagination of many young people, and therefore it was being discussed in schools. Inevitably, it will be. Um, and it was. Uh, but I was struck by the way that we received as parents a letter from the head teacher um, only really days after the murder of George Floyd, uh, suggesting that the school 
was thinking about how they might reflect on this, whether they might review some of their curriculum, um, whether they might review some of their school practices. And this struck me as quite extraordinary because mm. uh, my son was then, I think, 12 or 13. He'd been at school, obviously, for some time. And during that period, there will have been any number of, of, uh, uh, of remarkable political uh, events. Yeah. There had been wars, there had been terrorist attacks, but we'd never received anything from the school to suggest that the school needed to take a view on these things. So that got my mind rolling. Well, that um, was in America, wasn't it? George Floyd. It wasn't even here. It wasn't even here. But obviously, as, as you know, as, as I as I recognise, it did become a movement that was reflected in this country. And we saw uh, the introduction very quickly of some very partisan teaching materials, ironically, into the uh, into the religious studies um, area of the curriculum. Right. So one of the questions we asked, and this obviously is now um, three years on, uh, but in the polling was... Um, and this was to the 16 to 18 year olds, was um, whether they'd been taught in lessons. So we were quite specific about that, uh, that Britain um, used to be a racist country. Yeah. Now, that's obviously a matter of argument and interpretation. Um, but 69% uh, of, of the children that we spoke to said, yes, they had been taught that. Um, only 27% said they had not been taught that. Right. That's obviously a historical um, perspective, uh, one that I would argue with, but um, nevertheless, it's worth, it's worth having the argument. I think slightly more alarmingly um, was the 42% of the pupils who said that they are being taught that Britain is currently a racist country. Right. 42% uh, being taught that Britain is a currently a racist country, I think is pretty alarming. Um, I mean, it's an assertion. It's something that needs to be backed up uh, with evidence. Um, and in many ways, it, it's, it, it's a very worrying thing to be taught in a school environment because we live in a multicultural society, mm. uh, which is a, um, a very positive thing on the whole. And I think if you're then teaching children within that multicultural society that it's, it's an endemically racist society, uh, it, Potentially, you're creating any number of um, grievances and uh, psychological um, disruptions yeah. to impressionable children. You asked me earlier about what critical social justice is, and um, I think you know it spans a number of different uh, ideologies across different identities. Um, in a sense, probably the most controversial of those, and certainly the most controversial in my mind in a school setting, is this issue of gender, this issue, this suggestion that gender uh, is separate from biological sex, uh, that there can be any number of genders, uh, that, uh, that gender is fluid, uh, yeah. that you can uh, one day decide to identify um, as one gender, then um, potentially the next is another gender. Uh, this kind of idea that there are no fixed points is, is very difficult, I think, for children to navigate, let alone for adults to navigate. Um, and it would seem to go beyond the uh, perfectly reasonable expectations that schools should help children to be broad-minded and compassionate. Um, now, we asked um, the pupils that we spoke to uh, a number of questions on uh, in this area um, of the report. And, uh, for instance, um, we asked them whether 
any of, any of them had been told or taught at school by a teacher or someone else who'd been invited to speak to the school, so it could be an external sex education consultancy, for instance. Yeah. Um, had any of them been taught that sex is assigned at birth? Now, for those of your viewers who might be a little bit confused by that statement, um, it is, um, it, it's an expression uh, that has uh, become synonymous with um, gender ideology. Um, implicit in it is the idea that sex can be assigned at birth. Uh, it, it is not biologically correct. Sex is not assigned at birth. So therefore, it was somewhat surprising that 67% of the pupils that we spoke to said, yes, sex yeah. is assigned at birth is something that they had been uh, taught at school. So we're talking two out of three, basically. Yeah. Now, again, I would advise caution in interpreting any figures. It is possible, and I'm, I'm sort of, you know, playing devil's advocate here, I guess. It's possible that that expression would come up in a lesson and, there, and, and thereafter be um, conditionally dismissed, mm. as I have done. But we can't necessarily assume that. It's a controversial partisan statement. 67% of the pupils that we spoke to said they'd encountered it at school uh, in, a, in a lesson, not, you know, in the playground. Mm. Um, the other figure that uh, quite a lot of the press coverage picked up on was the question two pupils about whether they know of anybody at their school, including themselves, who may have considered changing gender or were still thinking about doing so. Um, and we found that 54% of those pupils, now bear in mind they are between 16 and 18, they're not primary age pupils, um, indeed had considered that or, or were considering and a further 10% said, yes, they were themselves right. going through this consideration process. Now, again, it's possible they may have considered it for half an hour and totally dismissed it. We don't know. And that's why it is important, I think, to be very uh, cautious and, um, and, and, and not to sort of um, scaremonger around these figures. But they're a snapshot. They tell us that these ideas are, are now widely discussed in schools. And I certainly know from my own experience that, you know, a lot of the young people in, in um, my son's cohort, in my larger family, they come home from school and they're routinely discussing issues to do with gender. They're not coming home from school and discussing, you know, the great book they're reading in English, mm. you know, how fascinating the Wars of Roses are, um, how great to learn, you know, uh, how bridges are held up. You know, any, any of the things that, if you like, might form the core element of a curriculum. They're fascinated by these very complicated and, and challenging ideas. As well, they might be 10 years on, but um, they're also worried by them, I think. They're also um, confused and, and at, often at odds with their parents. Not at odds with their parents because their parents don't wish to discuss them, but it's a sort of whole uh, language and um, culture uh, that unless you spend an awful long time reading into it, as I've mm. done, you wouldn't necessarily even know what your kids are talking about or that there's potentially something you know, rather dangerous about it. Mm. Uh, before we move on from the stats, a couple of other things that interested me. The first one being, because I know we're having issues now with uh, birth rate decline, etc. And there was a, a, a polling about uh, having children and, and related to climate change. 
Yeah, this this was intriguing, actually, because as, as you quite rightly say, I have to admit this was an area that I particularly knew a great deal about, the issue of the fact that, in fact, across the world now we have a declining birth rate, and that's not something that's very often um, considered. Um, but in that context, I think it's particularly interesting that when we um, asked uh, the pupils about um, their concerns over <laughs> climate change, 50% um, of the pupils we spoke to said that um, people should have fewer children uh, to prevent overpopulation and climate change. Um, now, that obviously has um, the potential to change. You know, I mean, how many of us thought about having children when we were 16? Yeah. Um, but then again, how many of us would have thought we wouldn't have children and, and for such a reason? Um, so that, uh, I think, was interesting. Um, and actually, we also specifically asked them about their views on or their concerns about really the longevity of, 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 of the world. And 53% um, overall said that they felt as a result of climate change, the world is likely to end in their lifetime. Really? Now, I think that's a very startling figure as well. Oh. People have said to me, and I think with, you know, with, with, with good reason, that uh, perhaps a generation ago we might have seen nuclear war as being uh, a potential threat in that way, um, or you know, previously perhaps famine. Or uh, I mean, well, that, that there are there are sort of existential terrors that, that teenagers uh, are, are inclined to to have. But um, it does suggest that perhaps the teaching about climate change in schools um, may have a tendency to be too alarmist. Uh, we've had a few people on the show talking about the problems facing men and boys these days. And I know you, you had a question about that. Yes, because uh, we, we did ask about this because one of the, um, again, one of, one of this very sort of um, obvious trends that seems to have been happening uh, both in wider society but also in schools very specifically um, is this whole discussion of toxic masculinity mm. which is tied into this other critical social justice trope of heteronormativity um, and also to a certain extent with the wider implications of what exactly do we mean when we talk about uh, gender stereotyping. Um, and um, I had certainly noticed in our experience that um, that a, a lot of boys uh, are coming under, I would say, a very negative framing to what could be a, a, a sensible and positive approach to just engendering respect for your, you know, for girls essentially mm. and respect for each other. Um, but there seems to be a negative way of framing this that is leading boys to think that somehow uh, they're intrinsically, there's something intrinsically wrong about them. So um, we found that um, as many as 41% of the pupils had actually been taught during lessons that young men are currently a problem for society. Really? Now, if you are a young man, if you're a young boy, um, if you're a teenage boy and you're trying to come to terms with your own identity, um, then to have that very sort of innate negative messaging, um, I would suggest isn't necessarily going to help you be a better friend to girls. No, especially um, if it's it, coming from someone you trust, such as a teacher. Well, quite. I mean, you know, one outcome of it could be that you end up feeling rather lost, um, resentful, lacking in confidence 
which are not great starting points for being a better contributors to society overall. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I think that, that, that we have big questions to ask about this whole narrative and whether even if taken, taken at face value that it's meant to be a positive thing, a constructive thing, to help young people to be uh, better attuned to um, people who are different to themselves for whatever reason, um, and to be better equipped to to take a positive role in society. You know, I think a lot of the direction of a travel of these various different threads of the ideology actually end up dividing people even more and making people potentially feel, you know, more at odds with each other than they would otherwise have been. Have you got anything about children who may not agree with all this stuff? How do you think they would feel? Well, I, I think that um, our, our polling was interesting on this because uh, what we found was that um, some schools obviously are managing to discuss these contentious issues in, in a sort of holistic way and in a way that enables and encourages um, children to... Uh, to express different opinions. Um, but curiously, and perhaps worryingly, uh, this, this may be a sign of, of what outside schools has become labelled cancel culture, uh, that we found evidence that the pupils that we spoke to felt um, that they couldn't really express uh, an opinion freely um, if it somehow um, contradicted to this sort of prevailing um, fashion or orthodoxy mm. on some of these political issues because they were worried about being bullied by other pupils, even if the school itself was 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 had taken a plural, pluralistic approach. So I'll just give you the figures exactly. 46% of the pupils that we spoke to, overall 46%, said that they did not feel comfortable contributing um, an opinion on contentious issues like gender sexuality, and sex because they felt that it could lead to them being judged or bullied by other students, 46%. Now, I'm going to break those figures down. Um, that included 35% of, of pupils who, um, who expressed that opinion even if they felt their school was doing its level best to encourage other opinions. Right. So, you know, that suggests that there is uh, a sort of societal move a, a real sort of judgmental um, quality to the wider public discussion on this. And it's, I think, particularly a shame if pupils don't feel they can express alternative positions in school, because that's a, that's a situation where you, know, you should be encouraged to debate, mm. to think, to discuss, and to review different opinions. You mentioned in your report that this is a revolution delivered by stealth. Uh, who is behind all of this? When it first became apparent to me that this was happening, I rather naively thought, well, hang on a second. You know, the schools are, schools are essentially um, governed by the Education Act. And it is true um, and very important that there are uh, strong clauses in the Education Act um, that demand impartiality and, um, and that uh, political partisan ideas aren't appropriate without uh, proper wider discussion. Um, however, the Education Act is very, very far from the only piece of legislation um, that affects schools. And what seems to have happened, particularly since the Blair government, is the rise in importance of the equalities legislation, right. the creation of so-called um, protected characteristics, 
um, and the obligation on schools and indeed all um, public sector uh, organisations um, and indeed many private sector organisations to uh, to protect um, the protected characteristics of, of different people. Uh, what role are third party providers play? So I, I feel quite sympathetic to, to schools and to teachers because they have now this huge raft of responsibilities, not just to teach children and to get them through exams, but also it would seem to inculcate a, a host of different um, values. Mm. And uh, often what I think is happening is that uh, the school leadership team don't feel confident in this new area and they call upon experts and it's a bit of a self what they consider to be experts it's a bit of a self-perpetuating cycle this because you have these uh, self-styled experts on uh, often on gender often on sex education um, and on race uh, related matters as well who set up consultancies these are sometimes very well-funded charities um, and they offer uh, to they offer to deliver this part of the curriculum, the part of the curriculum that, you know, your regular geography teacher, let's say, may not feel uh, completely um, competent in, in doing. Mm. And I think this is where a lot of the more radical end of the agenda seems to be coming into schools. There is a essentially an industry now um, of these third party providers, um, some of whom are, I'm sure are very competent, uh, some of whom I'm sure are very well intended, but not all of them are. Um, what they have been, what I've found in looking at a lot of the websites involved is that certainly until very recently, they were pretty blatant about the fact that they were political operators. Right. Now, they may not have seen it in those terms, but if you describe, let's say, your sex education offer as being intersectional, um, as being there to address the uh, gender imbalance between the sexes, uh, as being essential in order that... Uh, pupils know how to navigate a world that's inherently racist and you know extraordinary claims that are being made quite blatantly so um, by agencies who I you know I again I will give the benefit of the doubt or say maybe they are deeply sincere in this worldview but it is a particular worldview mm. it's not um, an impartial worldview and it's a worldview that may I think many parents may question how pertinent it is to sex education yeah. <laughs> um, so the obligation on schools now, the public sector equality duty, uh, the complications arising from you know, ever more prescriptive um, legislation around personal health, uh, social education, uh, religious, uh, sorry, not religious, um, uh, relationships, sex education, or as the um, Welsh call it, sexuality education uh, and health. I mean, this whole Agenda has grown exponentially, really, over the last 15 years, certainly. Um, and uh, I think, again, many parents would be surprised that sex education bears, you know, very little resemblance to anything about what we might have imagined sex education to be about, essentially, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps preventing teenage pregnancies, preventing the spread of sexually transmitted infections. Um, and it's become very much more uh, about lifestyle choices, identity issues, um, subjective considerations of what sexual pleasure may be, even mm. introduced really to quite young children. 
Um, I mean, I would say all parents need to engage with, with what their schools are teaching. So what's the government doing in response to concerns such as the ones you're raising here? And I know there's other reports that have done similar. And also the, the devolved governments, because I know it's a bit different in uh, Scotland and Wales. Well, I, I can't say what the Scottish and, and Welsh governments are doing about this, um, except that it doesn't seem to be in any way positive or in line with uh, the concerns of parents. Um, uh, in Wales, there's been a very concerted effort to protest outside uh, the Welsh Senate uh, fairly regularly about the fact that parents now have uh, no alternative um, but to... Um, submit their children to uh, an embedded um, relationship, sexuality education, as, it as it's called in Wales. There's no, no, no disguising the fact that it's not what we would previously have called sex education. Mm. Um, it's, it's, they're very open about, about the aims of it. And that's now to be embedded in, in, the, um, in the curriculum uh, for children, <clears throat> excuse me, I believe from age four upwards. Um, now, there's a very plucky group of campaigners in Wales that have been trying to do something about this, and they, uh, they're currently involved in, in various court cases. Uh, but that doesn't, you know, augur well to the idea that the Welsh government is receptive to, to being moderate about this. Uh, the Scottish government is also very, um, un under the SNP, is also very committed uh, to this agenda. And... Um, and I was really proud of the fact that it was in, in the forefront of this idea of embedding um, uh, these ideologies throughout the curriculum. Mm. Um, the, uh, parents do have some limited rights, uh, certainly in England and in Scotland, though I believe slightly less so there, um, to withdraw their children from the very narrow element of this broader agenda, which you can specifically argue is to do with sex education. Right. Um, and even then, it's only up until three terms before a child's 16th birthday. Um, but as to what um, the government in this country or in, in, in England is doing, I mean, clearly um, Rishi Sunak has uh, woken up to the fact that parents are getting very concerned about this. And I have to give credit, uh, absolute credit to two very important reports that, that have also come out this year, and that is one from the um, New Social Covenant Unit, um, which is about the very explicit nature of uh, sex education, and I really would uh, recommend that people look that up and read it because it uh, the evidence there is um, quite staggering, really. Um, and then the other one, which is from Policy Exchange, um, which was called Asleep at the Wheel, mm. and that looks at the uh, very, very um, broad um, spread of gender ideology into schools. Now, you take the two of them, um, and the, the evidence uh, is, is very, very compelling uh, that these are significant problems. What can other concerned parents out there, or just concerned people generally, do? Well, I mean, I guess the first thing I'd say to that is, is it's a, inform yourself, find out what is going on in your school and whether there is something that you um, should be concerned about. Um, you know, it may be that you're perfectly happy with what your school is doing. I'm not saying that this is being rolled out uniformly, but it's, but it's, very, it's very widely spread. I mean, I think that, that the legislative requirements on schools obviously uh, are universal in that sense. Um, but some schools will take a, a more moderate approach to this and others throw themselves into it wholeheartedly. 
I've certainly noticed in the independent sector, which obviously only represents a, a, a minority of schools, but nevertheless sees itself as being, if you like, and sometimes they even use this expression, certain schools, thought leaders in this area. Um, they, uh, uh, innovators, you know, they see themselves as innovators of this because obviously they're trying to sell themselves, uh, uh, literally sell themselves, and often sell themselves to overseas um, purchases of, of this education. So um, I, I certainly, in my, in my own survey, in, in the own research that I've done, I found that independent schools are very much at the forefront of the more radical end of a lot of this material. Um, and parents do need to engage in this. Unfortunately, it's no longer the case that you can, you know, send your children to school and, and trust that they're going to be, um, you know, in... I was about to say safe hands. That's safeguarding is, is a specific aspect of this, but you know that that the, the values of the school will necessarily accord with the values of, of family life. Mm. Um, so get yourself informed, um, and then I think you know you have to start. If there's something that you don't like, you have to start taking action. Now, for the reasons that I've said, the the legal rights that you have are are, are pretty limited. But what I've seen is that there's definitely a sort of grassroots movement growing mm. of parents that are concerned across a number of different areas. Perhaps, and quite understandably, the most pressing one um, is around the issue of the normalisation of gender ideology in schools. Not least because it seemed to have coincided with an extraordinary rise as, as our polling showed, but specifically with regards to teenage girls, um, of uh, what many people see as a social contagion um, of teenage girls um, really questioning their own um, gender identity, mm. having really absorbed this idea in many cases that gender is somehow different to sex, that you might even be able to change your sex, um, referring for, for, for psychological uh, or, or, as the Americans have, 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 have framed it, um, the euphemistically gender-affirming care. Mm. Um, and I think affirmation is the key word there because uh, the, the, the direction of travel um, of, of a lot of the psychological industry as well seems, or profession rather, seems to be uh, this idea that you affirm in a way that we would never have considered, for instance, affirming a teenage girl who presented with an eating disorder. Um, so, the, quite understandably, there are a lot of parents uh, who are deeply, deeply concerned about this, and you only have to look at social media um, and, uh, uh, you know, ac across the board to see that the groups are sort of um, springing up. But mm. often, um, parents feeling that they have to remain anonymous. Um, I mean, I certainly found at my... at our school, um, that when I started to raise issues about um, how these things were being discussed, parents were privately saying to me, well, we think you're doing the right thing, but, you know, we're a bit concerned about this and we don't want to be seen to be prejudiced or, right. or you know, we don't want our motives to be misinterpreted. I mean, people were genuinely, um, I wouldn't say scared, but they were very, very cautious and hesitant about putting their head above the parapet. Mm. This idea that's, that gender is fluid... It seems to be very widely spread in, in schools. And 
we had the option at our school, well, it wasn't presented as an option, it was presented as a fait accompli, uh, of two agencies that were coming in to talk to the children who were at that stage aged between, so it was covering a, a, an age group across 11 through to 16, um, and these agencies were going to talk to them about a number of issues um, in the uh, sex, sexuality and gender spectrum. And um, I just looked them up online and their materials were really explicit, really you know, biologically not sound. Um, I tried to engage other parents with this. They were concerned and alarmed, but they weren't really quite sure what to do about it. Up until the point where... Um, some of the fathers started to get involved and they realised they'd going onto the websites of these agencies and they were finding materials which... <laughs> I'm laughing now because um, uh, I, I was just trying to imagine the, the face of the head teacher when, um, when she received the letter from the father with the screenshot of the materials that was on the, the, on the front page of this very well-known um, sex education uh, agency. And he just said, why is this being taught in my schools when I wouldn't be able to show it to anybody in my professional setting? Mm. You know, that basically, if he had gone into his office, printed off this material, distributed it amongst his colleagues, he would probably have ended up with an HR issue. Though, according to government figures, 41% of children leaving primary school are struggling with the basics of reading, writing, maths. So there is an argument that maybe we need to kind of pull this ideology aside that's being pushed on the children and focus on the basics, really. I think there's an absolutely an extremely strong argument for that. I mean, even, even, if, even if it were far fewer that were leaving school with, with those sort of problems, uh, because that's, that's the core purpose of education. And if you equip children, it seems to me, with, uh, with those tools, then they are equipped to go through life and discover all these other things um, and make a judgment on them. The problem with, with um, treating schools as a sort of um, breeding ground for ideology is that actually, apart from anything else, apart from where you stand on the ideology, it takes up a great deal of time. Mm. And it is uh, essentially getting in the way of teaching the core subjects and, and giving pupils the um, solid foundation in knowledge which... Uh, has been tested and tried over the years, which accords with uh, you know, the values of Britain, rather than having to actually assertively teach them British values, mm. allow that to come through the texts, allow it to come through the literature, the history. Um, and in so doing, what you actually do then is you, you, you create um, and celebrate, to use a word that's very often... Uh, uh, very often used by activists, um, common values yeah. and common points of reference, which I would have thought in and of itself helps to bring society together, helps to create that inclusive, compassionate society, which I think we do all want. Um, that's the irony of all of this. I'm not at all sure, uh, that would be my critique, that um, that if you embed this in the curriculum, if you bend over backwards to try to encourage people to be uh, inclusive, that what you actually end up doing is uh, setting different groups against each other, undermining, as I say, those common values, that common understanding of our, our, our historical inheritance with its strengths as well as its weaknesses, 
um, and and you know a love of of knowledge for its own sake, um, an appreciation of beauty, an appreciation of great literature, of music. Uh, all of these things, I think, are being undermined by this agenda, and that seems to me to be completely tragic. John Adler, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. My pleasure.